in any of these systems, we know now that there's a number of behavior patterns that birds are really motivated to do. And any type of alternative system, alternative to conventional, is we try and accommodate these different behavior patterns. And these are were originally identified decades ago, and there's dozens and dozens of experiments and research that kind of sort of look at why does that behavior occur? What happens if the bird can't do that behavior? What motivates it? And those sorts of things. Those are the things that we try to accommodate um, in any kind of housing system that's welfare, that like welfare friendly system. And we also try and keep them healthy and out of trouble. A whole new era of communication in the poultry industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds of the global poultry industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. The Poultry Podcast Show is only possible with the support and trust of innovative companies like... At JBI, we apply biosecurity innovation and expertise to keep your operation safe. Natural Biologics is looking deeper to find the natural solutions to your poultry health challenges. Fibro Animal Health Corporation. Healthy animals... Healthy food, healthy world. AX3 Digest is a highly digestible source of protein with a low level of potassium, giving young animals a healthy start. Eastman works with you to accelerate your nutritional program innovation. Start your journey with us at Eastman.com. Welcome to the Poultry Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and everything that's working in the global poultry industry. Working with nature and not against it. Chickens fed AX3 Digest consume significantly less feed and water to produce one pound of meat. Successful flock performance is determined during the first 10 days post-placement. AX3 Digest is a highly digestible novel protein that most improved in barn performance, bird health, and a drier litter. For more information, visit www.protecta.com. Welcome to the Poultry Podcast Show. Today I am here with Dr. Tina Radowski and we are going to talk laying hen welfare. Welcome to our show, Dr. Radowski. Thanks, Elizabeth. It's great to be here. It's very exciting. Really excited to talk about this topic. I, I um, do a little bit of work in this space, but more in broilers. And so I love hearing about people working in the area because I always I always learn something new for myself to apply to our, my own research. Um so I just want to chat a little bit about how you got into chickens. So was was chickens always always your, your job aspiration or did you kind of come into it by a, a sideway? No, I actually started out in pigs. Um, so, right. So I did my, well, actually I grew up in Chicago and so I only knew dogs and cats and zoo animals. But in university, I started, I like many animal kids who like animals, I thought the only way to go was to do um, become a veterinarian. And so mm-hmm. I was at University of Illinois and I applied for vet school. And in that day, you needed some livestock experience. You still do. Uh, but yeah. I didn't have any. So I went to uh, one of my professors and um, uh, asked for a summer job. And it was a guy by the name of Stan Curtis at University of Illinois. And I never left. I did my PhD, master's and PhD in pig behavior and sow nest building behavior. And um, it was a fun time in that lab because Temple Grandin was my academic sister and John McGlone. And so we were, um, yeah, so, 
So I worked with pigs for quite a few years and pig welfare and behavior. And then um, I did a postdoc here in Canada um, with laying hens. And so I, I was introduced to, to some poultry research at that time. And then I did pigs again, but then Egg Farmers of Canada approached me about 10 years ago. Uh, 10, yeah, 10, 11 years ago and, and asked if I would be a research chair for Egg Farmers of Canada. And so focus all of my work on um, housing systems, basically for laying hens. And that's because the Egg Farmers of Canada sort of made the decision that they were going to transition all their housing away from conventional cages to both um, non-cage and enriched. And so, um, so that's great. And so I've been working, focusing my research on laying hens primarily since that time. I also dabble in broilers and broiler breeders and <laughs> so, yeah. So um, how did you kind of work your way into your current position? How uh, the, everybody seems to have an interesting story from this as well, but did you always stay in academics? Uh, pretty much. Yes. Uh, my husband was also an academic. He did his, um, he was a landscape architecture graduate from his master's also at Illinois. And then we moved to Madison, Wisconsin to when he did his PhD. And at that point in time, I worked in a monkey colony in the psychology department. So I, I didn't mention the monkeys before. Um, so, <laughs> so I work with, um, uh, cotton tip tamarins and it was a behavior um, communication and reproduction laboratory with with monkeys and so I did that and then um, it was time we started our family and my husband and I he finished his PhD and there was a job opening at University of Guelph which has great programs in both landscape architecture and animal science with a animal behavior and welfare focus and so I so just go. And so um, he started, but it took me eight years before I had a faculty position. Oh, wow. um, had my kids, did part-time work, sessional lecture, kept my hand in research. And so um, it was a different sort of a pathway than a lot of people take. Uh, yeah. One that I think is, it's nice for women to know that that's an opportunity to, to do a little bit of both. I don't think my career has suffered um, yeah. in any way. So yeah. Yeah. That, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, so I did my PhD at, at Wisconsin and Madison oh, and yeah, the, I'm dating myself here, but you know, the internet was not as searchable for papers. And so there was a few papers I had to go get special access to the primate research center so I could <laughs> get, make a copy in their journal collection. And yeah. I, yeah, so they, they asked me all these questions about why I needed to enter the library, but yeah, love, that's such a cool center over there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, a little jealous that you got to work in there. So that's yeah. awesome. <laughs> yeah, it was fun. It was interesting because then after that, I was postdocing and I started working with laying hens. So I went from monkeys to laying hens. Although I do think I do think pigs are actually smarter than the monkeys that I work with. Really? <laughs> I was like, oh man, if 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 you know, Damn. thank God pigs aren't in trees though. But anyway, oh. yeah. So it was interesting. <laughs> but then, but monkeys have teeth and laying hens don't, which is. A nice reason to work with laying hands. So anyway, <laughs> oh, well, I, I agree with you there. They're uh, yeah, the teeth are a whole different ball game. <laughs> they do they do fly though, and I teach a, a poultry class in the fall, and I always have students who are new to handling poultry, and that's one of the scariest things. Is you know if they get loose, they can kind of get airborne, and it's a scary first encounter with an animal if you are. A little nervous about flight. So. A lot of students yeah. I find are kind of scared of birds. 
There's a lot of people who have sort of bird phobias and are, yeah, handling chickens. But although I have to say, I have some Bovan Browns right now and they tend to be biters. Good thing they don't have teeth. (laughs) We're working with those and they they look, you know, you put your hands near them and they're like, oh, they pull you a little bit. Yeah, that is too funny. Oh, so I, I'd like to hear more about some of the current stuff you're working on. Can you can you tell me a little bit about um, maybe the some important hot topics that you've already mentioned, like the different caging systems and associated information with those? Yeah, um, I think probably one of the biggest hot topics, well, there's several actually. One big hot topic is, of course, transitioning to cage-free systems. With all of the mandates in the states, this is happening. Um, Canada, some st- producers are going to cage free, but um, a lot of producers are going uh, for enriched cages. They have the opportunity to do that. Um, but it's a huge learning curve for producers that are um, transitioning, particularly from conventional to, to cage free systems. And one of the areas that I've been focusing on that I is very exciting and I really like is the um, uh, development of pullets. So both behaviorally and skeletally, um, how growing up in an enriched aviary system makes these profound changes in the pullet. And it's so interesting and fun to watch. And it's that we know from experience, practically European experience, um, and now research is that if pullets are going to thrive in these non-cage systems, they have to grow up in a place that they get experience with all kinds of the motor development, um, their skeletons change behaviorally. It's really important. And so we've done, I just finished a, um, a large project on that and uh, been working in that area for a couple of years, going on probably close to 10 years now. And it is fascinating work. Yeah. Yeah. So what are you noticing? Um, So there's obviously changes just from weight bearing exercise, but is, is there, I don't know what the right word is, but is there a mental shift in birds that are raised in cages and then put into aviary compared to ones that have been raised aviary the whole time? Do they know how to move around and handle themselves? Can't do it. Birds, you can, birds who grow in cages do not have the capabilities to, to survive or thrive and going into a non-cage system. And that's for a couple of reasons. Um, they, there seems to be a sensitive period for learning about three-dimensional space. So you know how there's sensitive or critical periods, like, like dogs have to be socialized when they're in a certain age bracket. And if they miss it on that, they will never really do well with other dogs or with people or whatever. Like there is a window of time developmentally that they require that experience. And so this is true for, um, three-dimensional space for laying hens. And so they need to have experience with perches, um, terraces. They need to learn how to go up. And if they don't have that experience, they will never really be very good at that. And um, it's a concept that it's been around for a long time. Ian Duncan and and Mike Appleby decades ago, um, first is Broiler breeders wouldn't use nest boxes when nest boxes used to be up on walls in the old days. And we sort of discovered that, well, if they hadn't been reared with having to jump up, they would never really do it. Okay. So now we know that perching and going up is a learned skill in terms of their like spatial cognition. And so they have to have that experience. 
Um, but the load bearing exercise is as we we're looking at their skeletons and actually this is a, the the second uh, major project we did once a number of years ago the papers were published in poultry science by Casey Trot where we reared birds either in conventional cages or these big wide open rearing aviaries or commercial style and we looked at the skeletal development in these birds and um their bone strength the um depth of the the cortical depth of the you know, their bone cortex and, um, and the shape of their keels and size of their keels were completely different, if significantly different. And then in that experiment, we put the birds into um, enriched systems. So then throughout their adult of adulthood, from like the pullet stage all the way to the end of lay at 72 weeks, they were all in the same environment. And at 72 weeks of age, they still had stronger bones, thicker bones. Um, and those birds had fewer keel fractures. And so, so that whole developmental stage is really important. And so this last project, we were looking at different commercial styles of aviaries in which um the, if, I don't know if you're familiar with rearing aviaries, but you start the birds in for brooding for three to six weeks, depending on the producer, in sort of a smaller compartment often. And then those are opened up where then the birds get access to terraces and perches. And some of those are – that brooding area is very different depending on the style of aviary. And sometimes they're more similar to a conventional where they don't have the three-dimensional space. Sometimes they have – more space available and some and then there's a couple of aviary styles that are wide open concepts so we were just looking at whether birds reared in those different aviaries their bones were different and their um and if they're behaviorally they were different because those first few weeks were, were quite different experience and um so again profound differences in the skeleton between conventional and like we never really looked at pullets and how they developed very much before now. And it's just, it's amazing how the whole shape and size and strength of their bones is completely different depending on where they're raised and the sorts of activities they can do. Gosh, that's, that's crazy. So what, what else are you seeing um, as far as the different caging systems? Like what, what's going on there? I know there's some options between the way aviaries look and then also you're allowed to use enriched ages, which is really cool. <laughs> or there's interest in using them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they're absolutely, we, uh, the Canadian farmers are opting for that because our codes of practice do allow it. And so, um, so we're looking at, so there's different styles. So in rich systems, um, there's several behavior patterns. So they're, they're really a compromise in between um, a conventional cage and a, and a non-cage system. And there's a lot of literature that discuss the costs and benefits of, in terms of welfare of the different systems. Because we know that when birds are cage-free, they're at risk for more injuries, they're at risk for health problems, they're at risk for behavior problems. And then we know in conventional systems that there's not a lot to do and not a lot of space. And so um, that doesn't offer a very good quality of life for birds behaviorally. So um, in any of these systems, we know now that there's a number of behavior patterns that birds are really motivated to do. And any type of alternative system, alternative to conventional, is we try and accommodate these different behavior patterns. And these are, we're 
originally identified decades ago, and there's dozens and dozens of experiments and research that kind of sort of look at why does that behavior occur? What happens if the bird can't do that behavior? What motivates it? And those sorts of things. And every system is sort of built around that. And those, I, I call those the big four. And it's nesting. Nesting is the biggest priority for laying hens. Every time she lays an egg, there's a message that goes off in her brain that says, you find the right place to do this. And so, and that's hormonally driven, like yesterday's ovulation causes those changes in her brain. And she wants to find an enclosed place to do that. And so that's priority number one. She um, is also highly motivated to forage. And if you think about it, foraging, any animal that's evolved on this planet would spend their job is to forage and find food. So like that's their job. You are out there spending 60% of your day. I think the wild jungle fowl spend at least 60% of the day foraging and looking for food. And while we've selected laying hens to be more efficient and like waste less energy, so they're not as motivated, but they are still very motivated to forage. And you know, hens, they're very busy. So they spend their whole day pecking and scratching, pecking and scratching. And so that's another very important behavior. And if we don't provide them with opportunities for that, we know there's behavior problems occur. And then behavior number three is perching, the big, one of the big four. So hens are motivated they, they to go up, uh, to get up on a little thing that they can grasp onto and perch, particularly for roosting at night. And then the fourth behavior pattern that we know they're motivated to do is dust bathing. And so, um, and you'll see dust bathing occur like in a vacuum form. If you look inside of a cage, you'll see hens going through the motion on a cage wire floor. And so that one's a little bit more controversial because hens will sometimes sham dust bathe. We call that fake dust bathing, sham dust bathing. And sometimes they'll sham dust bathe right next to um, litter when it's uh, available to them. And so, and, and so those, those are the things that we try to accommodate um, in any kind of housing system that's welfare, that like welfare friendly system. And we also try and keep them healthy and out of trouble. And that's where the problem is with some of these big, not cage free systems is the birds can get in trouble. Yeah. So, so if you're somebody who wants to, maybe you're a producer and you want to spend time monitoring the nesting, perching, foraging, and bathing. Is there, do you have an idea of what a normal frequency would be? I know some of these things might be related to laying an egg or the time of day in the life cycle, but do you kind of have an idea how a producer could maybe determine if his hens are at a, a good level of welfare just from displaying those behaviors? Um, Probably, although hens will decide to lay. One big problem with cage-free systems is the hens will lay out, lay their eggs outside the nest, which might be a bit, which which could be. It's if she finds a better spot, it's probably a bigger problem for the producer than it is for the hen, <laughs> yeah. right? So, so we're kind of lucky because to get these systems to work, we rely on nesting behavior, and for broiler breeders or any kind of breeder flocks, we rely on that nesting motivation to make the whole thing work, right? So, so some producers, if, if the hens are settled 
if they find their nest and we, we call it settled behavior where they're just like, they're not searching around, searching around, they always go through a little searching, but if they just find a spot and settle into it, yeah, then we know they're satisfied with the spot that they're in. And that always usually occurs in the morning, right? It's like the hour before they lay their eggs. Um, dust bathing, when you'd see it in non-cage systems, and those are uh, usually different times a day. Actually, I'm working with um, uh, Janice Sigford and one of her PhD students, Tessa Greeby, at, am I allowed to use name? Sorry. <laughs> okay. At Michigan State. So looking at, they did a lot of um, um observations of of birds of different strains that are nesting in eight cage-free or aviary systems and looking at that um foraging is uh that one's a little bit tough uh birds will forage in cage-free um but also and they they cage in the litter but we're also looking at providing other enrichments for supporting foraging behavior so what would you what would you say if you're watching a, a group of birds? What would the different stress behaviors be? I know they would be different in cage versus non cage, but is there something that you can identify? I mean, there you know with chicks when one is screaming, something is wrong. Right, <laughs> like that's right. A, a very sharp, shrill vocalization that you know something's going on. Um, but what would be the things in laying hens to look for? Um, probably the biggest problem. And we don't understand it, and that's why it's still a problem, is feather pecking and feather pecking and cannibalism, okay? Feather pecking is very prevalent, and it's prevalent in almost every single housing system that we have. And so what's – it used to be thought, oh, this is conventional cages because they don't have a place to do but, – but so it's multifactorial, but we do know that providing proper foraging – so this is where the importance of foraging comes in um, – Birds that don't have a lot of opportunities for foraging are at risk for feather pecking behavior. So in non-cage, in cage-free systems, they've got the litter floors, but now there's a lot of work looking at adding additional enrichments like um, um, peck stones, pecking blocks. Those are edible enrichments. And um, so those are in addition to the, the litter floors and, and those give birds... Um, uh, a focus to peck at and also offer them opportunities to take in some different nutrients. They have some agency over the situation. They can go for and take in more minerals. So I have a, actually a really a big project going on and um, looking at preferences for different kinds of pecking blocks and peck stones, how it's related to if, if, it's, if it's related to their calcium appetite, because it's some of these are mineral based blocks and that gives them the opportunity to to ingest extra calcium if they want it. Yeah. So can you tell me a little bit more about the enrichment work that you're doing? That stuff is really, really interesting. Yeah, we are. Um, so we're looking at some of these different peck stones and pecking blocks. Again, these are pretty applied studies because they're commercially available and on the market. And um there's different ones that have different sorts of nutrient compositions. So some are primarily um, calcium and phosphorus. Some have more like bits of grain and molasses and things like that in there. And so right now what we both have it in enriched colony systems, but also in cage free, we want to know if birds have a preference for those and 
and if we're looking at different strains, browns and whites, because we all my work these days, I do browns and whites because they're completely different creatures. Um, and uh, we want to see if individual birds have different preferences for the different kinds of blocks and whether those their preferences are maybe related to some health outcomes. So we're identifying individual birds because if you look at calcium, the old calcium appetite literature, um, which you don't hear very much, you know, hens, laying hens will have this appetite and go will seek out calcium. And so um, I want to know if, you know, pecking at these blocks is related to that. And if it's, and if it's related to birds with maybe poor skeletons or whatever. So there's some, some very interesting opportunities to look at why birds do what they do in terms of these uh, pecking at blocks. Yeah. Yeah. So I know overall there's a little bit of a size difference just in the bird from a brown to a white. Um, and that might contribute to some different nutritional needs and whatnot, but what are, what are some big behavior or other differences that you notice between those two two different big categories of strains? Since I know that there's different genetics within each of those, they're completely different. I call them. I have actually. I'm given one of the talks I've given and I still do is called "White Hens Are from Venus and Brown Hens Are from Mars" because they're completely different, and especially in aviary systems. And if you do behavior tests on them, they're motivated by different things. So browns, browns love the floor. They don't, they don't go up. But if you actually look at their bodies, which I have done, and their skeletons in that, and look at their keels and their breast muscles, which they need for flight, compared to a white, even though brown's a bigger bird, compared to the white strains, browns have smaller keels per unit of body weight. So they have proportionally small keels proportionally smaller breast muscles. They don't like to go up. And um, white birds are just, they're much more behaviorally flexible. So in aviary systems, they do way better because they go, they, they go up and they can, um, they're more interested in, in, in using different, different tiers and things like that. Yeah. Huh. So are browns more motivated then to forage if they're in kind of like a, a floor preference or are there other things they like to do? Uh, that's a very good question. I haven't looked at that. They tend to be, they're afraid of different things we're, we're, and they respond very differently. Everybody thinks browns are calmer and whites are flightier. Well, whites are flightier because when they get become afraid in a fear test, they like fly. And so the, they're flyers, right? So you can, you can fight, flight, or freeze reaction. Browns freeze. So browns just go and they they freeze. And so everyone's like, oh, browns are a lot more laid back. Well, they might be churning up on the inside, but they just don't show it so much on the outside. Ah, right? the poker way- face. <laughs> the way they respond. Um, whites are more fearful of people. Browns are more fearful of novel objects. So the things that the situations that they find fearful and the way, the manner in which they respond is different. Their HPA response, so if you measure stress hormone when you restrain them, whites go way up and browns stay lower. And so they're, they, they're different. They're just 
Completely. I mean, when you, and we do a bunch of behavior tests where we try and get them to like, you know, can, do you want to, we, we want to, for example, study if aviary versus conventional rearing helped them to learn better or made them smarter basically later on. But you try and run them through a maze or a test and, um, food, like they're not as food motivated and they're afraid of different things. So you almost have to set up your test differently for the whites and the browns because they don't cooperate in the same way. And so it's, it's really interesting. So, so are there, are there things that we maybe could build into aviaries or at least stocking density for browns that would be beneficial, maybe more perches on the ground or perches lower compared to more vertical space if they prefer the lower space? Yeah, or don't use browns and aviaries as much. Oh, yeah, 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 that would make sense. So, so um, maybe that's a unpopular thing, but, you know, some of the countries that um, have, um, have had aviaries for a long time have primarily white eggs sometimes. So um, browns, I think browns do better in floor-based systems, or you have to have... Um, there are aviaries that are a lot more forgiving of birds that don't want to move vertically as much. So there are aviary styles where their food and their water and their nests are all on the same level. And so if those birds don't want to move around, they don't have to, right? Whereas there's other systems where you have to go to a different tier for the nest and then you go to a different tier for the, the food or the water. And the ones that if the birds have to move around a lot more in order to find those resources, that's, that's, that's a lot harder probably on the browns. And, and so matching the genetics to it um, is, is important, I think. (laughs) Yeah. It it sounds like the, the tears would be mentally stimulating for the, the white strains of birds that they probably wouldn't enjoy going on a little scavenger hunt <laughs> for their daily resources. It's interesting. Well, with with the Michigan State research as well, um, they're looking at like the space use for browns versus whites dust bathing. And it's really interesting. Here's another complete difference. Whereas whites will dust bathe right on top of each other in a group and don't seem to mind. And browns need their space. They have a bigger individual difference between each other. And if somebody gets into it, they just, it seems like they cut off their dust bathing. So yeah, in every way, shape or form we find. So now here's a, if you ever do Langhen research and you want to make your grad students happy, always have browns and whites strains as part of your experimental design because you always get a significant difference. Oh, it's great. Well, <laughs> gosh, it, it sounds like there are almost some, I don't know if the term applies to birds, but almost like introvert versus extrovert qualities that have been selected for is that I don't, I don't dabble in the area of genetics just because, you know, you got to have a focus, but I, I wonder if those are connected to some of the other behavior uh, differences. Cause I, I would be in, like, Get out of my space. This is my bathing area. Like you, you can't be, I'd be a brown hen for sure. <laughs> I don't know. The phylogenetically, I guess the browns come from very different backgrounds. I think, um, I think they might more be more genetically diverse than the whites, but I'm talking outside of my expertise. So I better. Yeah. Not <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
Uh, well, there's there's not a lot of people that work on the, the genetic uh, component, so we have to pull one of those experts in to really know. But then again, that might be a company secret. So <laughs> That's <laughs> right. Well, I do know for cage-free systems, genetics companies are paying a lot more attention on behavior. Makes total sense from just listening to the few things you've described about preferences and stuff they like to put their emphasis on. <laughs> so is there is there anything else that is um, a big behavior difference that would maybe drive a research direction? Is there, um, do they even have preferences for other, other things that might be in the environment? I know people have done some work on pecking strings or, you know, other environmental enrichments beyond um, just a, a food, uh, an extra food enrichment. Is there, are there other enrichments that the bird that have been successful as far as environment opportunities? In terms of laying hands, so a lot of it goes into, well, the some people would, uh, you know, like nest design and the flooring in the nest and that sort of thing. Um, probably less so because most of the things that, at least for a laying hen that you get them to do um, to keep them busy would be stuff that they would peck at, right? Um, whereas, let's see, so if, what, what do we give for broiler enrichment? Things that they could get up on or like, um, so pretty much it's mostly different kinds of scratch mats. So pecking strings and things like that. But I don't know of any of those that are actually out on the market. Um, like I haven't run into many of those on farms and everything or, or anything. Um, I have seen people do their do-it-yourself rich enrichment devices for like pullets where they would take big like um you know, pop bottles or soda bottles and, and hang them, hang stuff in them. But again, mostly birds are going to be attracted to and peck at those things. Seems like a major motivation for hens. <laughs> Absolutely. And that's why if they're, if they don't have the opportunities, then they kind of turn some of it on each other. And so. Yeah. So is the feather pecking, it's, is it both self-directed and directed at others when you say feather pecking or is self-mutilation a totally different behavior or not under that category? Yeah, that's different. You don't see that in poultry very much. In parrots and um, some pet birds, you will see self-plucking, and that's a problem in those. Um, in yeah. poultry, you see feather pecking. And so that is when a bird, you know, there's gentle feather pecking and severe feather pecking, and that is when a bird actually pulls out and damages the plumage on another bird. And it's that is a very important issue because um, when birds lose and um, have poor plumage and feather damage, it affects the bottom line, which I don't think farmers necessarily realize. It's because their their feed efficiency suffers because they um, lose heat, and so you either have to put more heat in the barn or, or the bird eats more food, and so. Um, with missing feathers, you can put a dollar value on that. And so, so it's, it's bad for the recipient. We don't understand why the feather peckers necessarily do that. Um, things that, you know, stress, stressors can um, um, elicit feather pecking. One of my colleagues, Alexandra Harlander, is looking into the microbiota and looking at um, gut issues. Seems like birds prone to feather peck have different um, microbes in their gut than birds that are not prone to feather peck. Um, and it's like, it's a, the billion dollar question if we could figure out the answers to it, because it's 
a big problem all over. And it looks really bad to the general public. So on the topic of the just the feather pecking from a stress standpoint, how do you differentiate between a bird that is getting feather pecking injuries from a really high producing bird? Or maybe can you not? Because I know over time their feather quality does get poorer and higher producing birds are putting less emphasis on maybe even grooming, if you will, but just have poor feather quality. So how do you differentiate between those two? It seems to be, it might be hard. Well, you can see some of the areas where the feather damages. And so typically, and there are a number of feather scoring systems that it's a lot of producers are starting. We've been talking about it in terms of animal based measures that can be used. I sit on the United Egg Producers Advisory Scientific Committee for Animal Welfare and, and also on the, the Canadian Code of Practice is trying to get people used to um, doing feather scoring and keeping track of it. Ah, yes. Right. And so there are feather scoring systems. So plumage condition, you'll see like on the, above the back of the tail, there's some areas that typically you will see where feather pecking would occur, where you won't see the feather loss in the same way. Right. And so, so it's kind of obvious that it's picked off and balded in a weird spot. So like above the tail is a, a spot. Um, other places that birds might use loose feathers is, um, for, for other reasons would be like um, um, if they're rubbing on, say, a feeder or something like that. But feather pecking is definitely where it's it's along the back, higher up in the back. And um, there's a number of feather scoring systems that can be used to track that. And I know of some producers that know that if they have 40% or whatever plumage damage, that they're going to have to up the feed. Oh, yeah. Because it's related to feather loss. So it's it's bad for the producer. It's bad for the bird. Um, trying to figure out, you know, it's bad for the industry because the birds look ugly. Um and, and even though it's, and, and it's a struggle for producers because oftentimes, you know, it's like, um, you'll have the same, you know, the same barn and the same feed and the same everything. And then you just have a flock that starts and has a problem with it. And it's kind of unpredictable. And so there's a lot of effort that's been put into, um, trying to, to, offer suggestions to, to manage things and alleviate things. Um, and particularly in countries that, cause there are countries that don't allow beak trimming or beak treatment. And when you have feather pecking outbreaks in those places, it's a lot more serious because birds do get more injured and, and die. You get higher mortality. Gosh. Yeah. Yeah. A little sharper than the, the average. <laughs> are there, are there any other hot topics that We've been talking really interesting about uh, different enrichments, the different strain differences, and then um, kind of the main motivators. Is there is there anything else that's kind of a big hot topic that we haven't covered? Keel damage. Ah, yes. <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> that's a hot topic, and there's a lot of research interest in that. We've been doing some work here, too, is that birds have the, the keel bone in the front, which is the anchor for their pectoralis muscles and their, so their breast muscles. Um, we discovered that birds have fractures in their keels. They have, we've known they have deviations, but they have fractured keels oftentimes. And we think that they're painful 
but we think that there's different reasons for it. But then again, so there's um, trying to figure out ways to alleviate the problem. It's probably due, like birds have osteoporosis. I mean, they're really, they're, there's a big calcium drain on their skeleton. And so um, kale fractures, they're like, you can quantify them in different ways, like by palpation and by radiogram. You have to be really good at it to do get good numbers, of, um, valid and reliable numbers from doing using palpations. Um, but genetics companies are also very genetics companies are very interested in that and also in their bone strength. Um, so that's one of the costs from a welfare standpoint is their their bone quality is affected by selection for high levels of productivity. So, so we do see that, you know, there are some costs in, in most of our livestock species when we've selected for productivity, um, sometimes at the expense of other things, um, there are costs in terms of health and well-being. And so um, it seemed like a good, like we're just figuring those out. And so those are now becoming a, a bigger priority as to, to select back for you know, more robustness and, and healthier birds. And, and, and so, so, so keel fractures is a big one. So from both behaviorally, genetically, nutritionally, how can we give that bird a better start and, um, you know, a stronger keel throughout her life and, and less collisions and less accidents. And, and so that we can, uh, mitigate that problem. Yeah. I, I had a, um, a colleague that once mentioned from the egg engineering department um, that the changes from the beginning, the early cage free systems, so the ones we have now, there's been an incredible amount of work done on you know the average landing pattern and angles that birds come in as far as the ramps and the perches. That it's definitely helped the keel bone injuries, um, but I I think there's probably some other designs that could be more safely updated to help that? Because I know some of them are just because birds are bopping around and, you know, hitting a part of the system doing their normal bird stuff, right? <laughs> they're, That's they're right. Just, they're having, they're having uh, injuries from that. Yeah. Some of the fractures, though, we think might not be from collisions at all. There's really? Like a, yeah, there's some that you get down at the bottom. If you imagine the keel, the keel, yeah. how's the keel? Look? Okay. Yeah. Down at the yeah. bottom tip yeah. here. <laughs> You get tip for it. So if, if this was the front of the keel and you see like birds that are crunched that you know that they collided into something it's crunched, but you see yeah. tip fractures down here and they're probably not from collisions. We're not exactly sure why it seems to be where that's the last part to calcify on the keel. Mm. And it might be, uh, early egg laying. Oh, interesting. So, you know, that's so where, you know, because the birds change when they reach sexual maturity, the keel moves out and like the yeah. whole kind of skeletal structure changes. So, so we're yeah. not exactly sure why that's happening, but um, yeah, we're not sure that that's actually collision based. So there's, there might be different etiologies for different keels, but if you're going to, to poultry science, oh, let's see, there's going to be a genetics symposium on genetics and welfare this summer so and i imagine there'll be some talk of keel at that so yeah so some of the the keel deviations that end up i know in the more severe cases they look like an s do you think that some of those would start maybe at the base with improper calcification or do you think 
it's a collision and then a, a recalcification that happens, or is it a combination? You know, how does a bird get a severe deviation in their keel that is likely painful? Is it injury, calcification, or both? We, we don't know. And what, people aren't certain that deviations are actually painful. We think yeah. fractures are. Yeah. But um, although sometimes you don't find changes, and sometimes you do find changes, there needs to be more work on the, I think, pain involved in that. Um, yeah. But I, most of us who work in the, in the keel world, um, I would say don't th really think that deviations are necessarily painful. Some of the early work on deviations found that when birds had perches, you'll see more deviations from the weight being placed on it with it. And we do know that certain perch designs can affect the keel differently. We're just, you know, small and round versus flatter. That's why for a while you see more flatter mushroom shaped perches where the, the, there's more weight distribution on it. So you think of a little small round one, this is not very, my, it's not very round, but if you imagine that, then it's just like this, right? And so if it's more flatter, you get more weight distribution on that. So, so that might be um, that something that influences. Oh gosh, that, that's really interesting too. And as far as the type of grip that they have to have and how they might be resting their keel, I bet that is different between the really round versus the kind of the more relaxed, open mushroom shape. Yeah, it is. There was a work out of, I think it was Germany a number of years ago, where they looked at the force on the feet versus the force on the keel with different shapes of perches. And it seemed like that mushroom shape is a good one because it was kind of the best for both spots, right? So what's good for the feet might not be good for the, the keel and so on. So, um because foot pad problems are another issue that you see in, in laying hens in some of these systems. Yeah. Oh, and this is fun. <laughs> I like learning about <laughs> some of these, the really interesting parts of welfare. Is, is there, so is there anything that we haven't chatted about um, that you might want to add in before we ask you the three questions we ask everybody at the end? No, I think that's <laughs> cool. good. The three questions. Gosh, I hope I can yeah, answer Yeah, the that. three big questions. <laughs> All right. It's time for our famous three. The Poultry Podcast Show is only possible with the support and trust of innovative companies like your partner for improving animal performance, Berg and Schmidt. DSM, helping customers with efficient, sustainable poultry production. Ivonic, we are sciencing the global food challenge. AB Vista offers pioneering products and technical services tailored to the poultry industry to help them succeed. Adiseo provides nutritional solutions and services to help producers achieve their targets in high-quality, safe, and sustainable way. A worldwide leader in animal nutrition, Adiseo's portfolio of products includes methionine, the full range of vitamins, enzymes, organic selenium, probiotics, mycotoxin management strategies, and palatability products. With such a diverse offering, Adiseo supports its customers with a broad range of expertise, tools, and services to help them maintain a competitive advantage. Adiseo, fueling predictable profits. To learn more, visit Adiseo at www.adiseo.com. So the first, of, the first of the big three questions is, what is your favorite poultry-related resource? The last few years, I have been, and I give it to gifts of my students, a good thing is, 
um, The Behavioral Biology of Chickens by Christine Nichol. I like that. That's a good book. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's a very a, good book. Put it on my, put it on my reading list. <laughs> it's fun because it's got a little bit about everything. I think one of the neatest things about about uh, talking with people is hearing all of their book rec- recommendations. So. <laughs> um, the, so the second question is, what's your uh, a favorite pult- non-poultry related resource? So a book outside of agriculture that maybe you've been reading lately <laughs> or podcast or other. Pod- I, I have to admit, I listen to CBC, Canadian Broadcasting Company podcasts all the time at night. And like, there are just different news shows and things like that so that's my favorite i spend most of the time probably listening to that yeah well that's a good way to catch up on other you know outside agriculture or maybe they even even include agriculture news (laughs) not much no not much (laughs) so uh the the last question is um how how would you what sort of advice would you give someone who wanted to be successful in the poultry industry in the poultry industry and yeah. research. Oh, either. Yeah. <laughs> I would say from a re- research, get on as many farms as you possibly can. Mm, yeah. Right. So that's the beauty of my Egg Farmers of Canada research chair that has been really good is that I have, um, I meet farmers from all over the country and I try and do some commercial trials as well as laboratory trials and particularly in the in context of animal behavior and welfare, unless you're in the barns and know how it is for the people in the barns and the birds in the barns, you don't really have a good understanding of how to keep your research relevant because you can have all these ideas what should be done, but then when you actually go into a barn and you have to work in there and then there's the hens doing stuff, it's, it's, it's a whole different world. And I get my best research ideas from farmers. And I, and I also have many students that go out into the industry afterward, um, after training with me. And it's just, I think I love to see my impact actually go out there and talking to farmers. And and so to get on as many farmers as possible, if you want to do research. Yeah. Oh, I think that's great advice. (laughs) They know a lot more than I do about the birds. Oh yeah. They're with them. I know. I just know, I know different stuff, but anyway, yeah. So that was that's my advice for poultry research. Well, I think that that's that's great advice. The relevance is incredibly important, especially if you want to make changes for that work for both humans and and animals. That is something that can never be forgotten. So, <laughs> well, it's been awesome chatting with you. Thank you so much for your time. Um, I've learned a lot during this, so I think our listeners will as well. But yeah, really fun. Thank you again. Great. Thanks so much. I was really happy. And um, yeah, um, have a good afternoon. Hope to see you at maybe PSA. Yeah, poultry science back back in the USA. (laughs) That's right. Awesome. Thank you.